Chesterton once wrote, There are two equal and eternal ways of looking at this twilight world of ours. We may see it as the twilight of evening or the twilight of morning. That is, we know that the world is headed somewhere. The state that it is now in, it will not be the final state. It's a twilight world, an in-between world. The question isn't, is the world headed somewhere? The question is, where is the world headed? What is it transitioning towards, towards the evening or towards the morning? As Christians, should we expect things to get darker and darker ultimately, or should we expect them to get brighter and brighter ultimately? Which twilight is it? And how we answer that question as Christians really matters. And it brings us to the subject of eschatology, which is the fancy word for the study of last things, or as your dispensationalist uncle with all the charts and graphs for deciphering the exact second of Christ's return calls it, the end times. Now, whether one has an optimistic eschatology or a pessimistic one will have major consequences for how we live our lives. How you view the end times will inevitably impact your expectations, which in turn will impact your efforts, which of course will ultimately impact your harvest. Consider a farmer, a metaphor Jesus often used for helping us understand spiritual realities. Now imagine that this farmer rolls up with a trunk full of seed to two separate fields, and in both fields, it was twilight. However, over the one field, the sun was setting into a deep and lasting darkness. But over the other, the twilight was the sun rising with the promise of more and more light to come. Which field is that farmer going to seed with more faith and more hope and more joy and more vigor? Of course, the one that has the promise of more and more light. Well, most Christians today believe that the earth is in the twilight of the evening that things are going to grow worse and worse until a final cataclysmic Armageddon event happens, or that at any moment, they're going to be raptured out of this world before a great tribulation comes upon it. But is this the actual trajectory of the story that scripture is telling? Or was Habakkuk serious when he said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that actually the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, or the prophet Isaiah when he declared that now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Or even as our Lord said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Well, an important part of our Reformation red pill journey was coming to an optimistic eschatology, what some call post-millennialism. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that I would never have planted our current church, Pilgrim Hill, especially during COVID, had I not gone post-mill. Had I not become convinced from Scripture that, yes, we do live in a twilight time, but it is not the twilight of the evening for the church, but rather it is the twilight of the morning. And this is what we'll be discussing in greater detail on this week's episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support what we're doing, please go and like the podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and go give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify 
It's free for you and it helps us more than you can know. And if you really want to support the podcast, you can join our Reformation Red Pill Patreon. It turns out that producing high quality media content is quite expensive. We have a whole slew of cultural reformation, Christendom building content that we want to create. We're just going to need some fuel in the engine to make it happen. So if you like this content and you want more of it, I encourage you to go and vote with your dollars. And now, without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode of the Reformation Red Pill Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Reformation Red Pill Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Hames, and I am joined with... Brooks Pottinger, pastor of Pilgrim Hill Reformed Fellowship. And we might as well call him a co-host at this point. Oh, yeah. We are also joined in the studio with the man himself, Robert Murphy. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's every time, every time. I might just have to do that every time you, got to. you say anything. That'd be fun. <laughs> so today we are covering uh, one of my absolute favorite topics. Mm. We are covering post-millennialism. Mm-hmm. So this was a big part of my Reformation red pill journey personally. Yeah, me as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as I got into Reformed theology and took that Reformation red pill, somehow, I don't know why, but it, along right along that Reformation red pill road, down the rabbit hole, the <laughs> next step for me was eschatology. Yeah. yeah. Eschatology. And uh, we're going to kind of give a broad overview of eschatology as a theological discipline. We're going to get into the three major views and the four views of revelation throughout the podcast. But before we get into all that, mm-hmm. I really want to hone in on the first question, yeah. which is why does eschatology matter? There's a great YouTube channel called Eschatology Matters <laughs> and they've got it right. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, why, I mean, why does eschatology matter? Well, I, it, it's not an overstatement to say that I, I would not have even planted Pilgrim Hill mm. had I not gone post-mill, especially mm. during COVID. So we yeah. planted <laughs> during the the ripe prime season of COVID. Mm. Um, say that in jest, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's because I had every expectation that, um, yeah, it may be tough for a little while, but but Christ is going to win and the seeds that we plant now will have generational fruit um, by, by the grace of God. And so it just was an expectation that what we are doing now really does matter, that, that we're not just polishing the brass on the Titanic, that it's not all just going to, to burn and then be remade, um, but the seeds that we plant now will... Um, bear fruit out in the years to come and in the generations to come. Yeah. Like what kind of story are we in? Yeah. I think if you, if you, you know, all the world's a stage and you come and you say your line, kind of Kevin Van Hoosier has a whole theology of theodrama as, as that. But like, if you were going to be in a movie and they're like, okay, there's going to be action. There's going to be excitement. Good guy's going to like stop the bomb from the bad guy, all the things. And then it's just going to sort of like peter out in the mm-hmm. end. And we really don't know what to do with an ending. And we'll just shoot whatever and just sort of string it together and put mm-hmm. that on stage. Or, you know, it's all going to be awesome and then the good guy is going to lose. They're all going to die and there's not even like some redemptive thing to their death. We're just right. wanting it to be over. Like, who would who would act right. in that movie? Who would mm. be part of that story? And, and what kind of king is Christ? Yes. <laughs> is he effective um, in his in his post as king? Will, will he really subdue all of his enemies and um, yeah. bring them under his reign. So, yeah, that's a, I mean, in summary of, of both of those points is, is the idea that God is a good storyteller yes. and the ending of the story, how we understand the ending of the story mm-hmm. impacts us all as characters in God's story yes. right now. And so yeah. it matters what we, how we understand the end. Um, and one point that I want to 
really emphasize and kind of a through line throughout the whole episode is that your understanding of eschatology will inevitably impact your missiology. Mm -hmm. yeah. So your how you view the end times, how the story wraps up, that will shape how you engage in God's mission. Right. That and it, and it can't not. Right. Um and so that's 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 one of the major reasons why it's important mm -hmm. because it it has an incredible impact on how we engage in God's mission. Yeah. Everybody used to just to define anything. Where did it come from? How does it work? Where is it going? Where is it, it going? going? Yeah. Right. Like exactly. That's just fundamental to the, everything. It turns out that the telos of a thing matters, especially yeah, right. the whole story. Yeah. Right. yeah and, and some people will get on to us for quibbling over what we call a tertiary doctrine. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there, we've got three kind of tiers of doctrines. You've got your primary doctrines, your secondary doctrines, and your tertiary doctrines. Primary being Orthodox Christianity, yeah. Trinity, you know, the, the person and work of Christ. Resurrection. Big, yeah. yeah, you must believe these to be a Christian. Amen. And then you've got secondary doctrines, which tend to divide denominations. Yeah. Right? Our view of baptism. Yeah. Whatever. Church government. Church government, these yeah. kind of things. Yeah. And then you've got tertiary doctrines, which you can worship in the same community. Yep. And still hold to these different views. And so some people will say, like, why are you quibbling over a tertiary doctrine and I think I heard, I think it was, was R.C. Sproul who was talking about this. And he's like, just because something is a tertiary doctrine doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to dive into God's word mm -hmm. and come up with what yeah. you what you really believe that God's word is teaching on it. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and why this isn't a tertiary doctrine, I would say, is one of the features of postmillennialism is the fact oh, that spoilers? It, it, oh yeah, I'm, I'm we'll probably be all over the place yeah, in this good, one. But it it marries um, the creation mandate with the great commission. Yeah, it, it doesn't think that God had this this dominion mandate and was like this was the plan. We fell. Okay, let's just scrap that whole plan and it's all an escape to heaven plan now. Yeah. Right. No, it's it's actually new Adam come to create a new humanity who can now actually fulfill the creation mandate and the dominion mandate ultimately. Right. Um, but Amen. I and the, the, the fancy vocab word is, uh, I love this word, it ne never gets said enough, is protology. Okay. Is like the study of first things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. so like, what did it mean? What did the fall mean? What did the first Adam and the second Adam, the good creation of the world that was good, the fall away from that, the redemption, but that there is something more still in the future mm -hmm. and that knowing how it started well and then tying that into the ending, protology, eschatology, it all goes together to say, what does the world mean? What is God doing? What is the entire big story? When, yeah, what is Christ, the story? Yeah. The gospel? That's exactly it. It impacts everything. And okay, so uh, <clears throat> we have shown our cards here a little bit right at the <laughs> beginning. Sorry, uh, sorry. So that's great. No, so we all three hold to what is called post-millennialism. And so to, in order to understand and make a case for post-millennialism, we are going to give a, we like to give a steel man of the opposing views, but we don't really have time. In this <laughs> episode. A lot, right. There's too much to get into. So we're just basically going to outline the positions of the three major views of eschatology being premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And all three of those views revolve around uh, the most debated, unclear passage in all of scripture. Right. But I mean, know, there's a sense in, in which Revelation they are 20. unfortunate terms because there's a whole That's what I mean by constellation that. Yeah. of other <clears throat> things that go into each of these points of view that aren't just like, what is your view of Revelation 20? Right. There's a whole host of how do you read prophecy? How do you read scripture? Yeah. What is your you know take on things in general that then get read into that? And this label is just overloaded yes. with mm -hmm. trying to just pre ah uh, and post. There's so much more difference between just what do you do 
with revelation. Right, and, and a basic hermeneutic is you <clears throat> explain obscure or, or harder to understand passages with right. the clarity of the passage. Yes. And I think what's what's unfortunate sometimes here is people get a view of Revelation. So Revelation 20 mm-hmm. is the only time this, this millennium, th- or not even the millennium, but thousand-year language is used. I think it's used six times in that chapter. Yep. Um, but it is the hardest-to-understand chapter in the hardest-to-understand book. Right, right. And so, it, But if you make that your starting point and then read the rest of the story in light of that, it is... Yeah you're doing it opposite what has been the entire thrust of the whole story yeah. and then how do we understand it even lawyers say hard laws make bad laws if you try to, to tail it to a particular right. situation right and then generalize from the most obscure to the most general right you're gonna go off the rails yeah and so with that we're gonna go ahead and outline the three positions we're, we're gonna do that but there's also another piece that a lot of people I don't know if a lot of people don't think through it as much or haven't thought through how important it is to also in the discussion with uh, uh, in the discussion of eschatology, you also have to talk about your interpretive framework yeah. for the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. uh, because I mean, Revelation is the book that is really you know mm-hmm. touted as all about the end times, especially today. And some positions would say that's not exactly true, yeah. right? Depending on your interpretive framework for the Book of Revelation. Well, m- most people expect an apocalyptic ending to the story. And they say, well, the last book of the Bible makes it pretty clear that things are going to get devastatingly horrible. So how could you possibly interpret it any other way? That's just the basic software operating system for for most people. I have people on Twitter telling me I can't be a Christian because look at Revelation. You think that the world is going to get better? There's no way you could be a Christian and believe the word of God. And believe the world is well, going to get better. Read Revelation, after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then that's that's why these are important. Do, do we want to get into the other things first, or do we want to get the Revelation? Let's yeah. start with the three views. Okay. So pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, or amillennialism, and post-millennialism. Who wants to... Okay, so I think that, I mean, obviously, so the millennium is just a fancy way to say a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And I think most people, I don't know of anybody that gets super-duper literalistic and says it's... 365 times 1000 days <laughs> that in Greek, you know, we have, we, we say a billion, a gazillion. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have these exaggerated terms for large numbers. Back then, you know, that was a great big honking chunk mm-hmm. of days. Yeah. And so that's like why the Lord it, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right. That meant right. Like a Just ton. He owns epic, more than that. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Epic right. But what about all the other hills? Cause that's a, no, yeah. that you can really translate it with a gazillion. Right. Is yeah. that like, yeah. So this gazillion year, this, this long, long stretch, um, is uh, are we saying that right now is before that? So pre meaning before. So a pre male person says, Wait a second. we are living before that. Pause on that because I agree with you on the gazillion illustration, but with that, the premillennial person is going to disagree with that. They're going to say it's so a there, literal So there are two years. flavors of okay. premillennialism that are extremely important here is that um, starting 200 years ago, 250 years ago or less, there is what is called dispensational premillennialism. Mm. And they, yeah, there are people in that camp that would say 365 times a thousand um, days. And then the historic premill that you can go back to Irenaeus and- Which may be the, I think, isn't that the oldest uh, known eschatological yeah. position yeah. that yeah. they're- And we, they're, yeah, yeah, we should be willing to grant them mm-hmm. right of places that that yeah. was the first one we have written about. I think Irenaeus was the well, yeah, and, and even first and second Thessalonians, it, this shows us that there was not clarity on mm-hmm. when the resurrection was, was going to happen. So yeah, 15, I mean, the, yeah. the Lord saw, saw fit to write that cliffhanger into the story of church history. Yeah, and so, true. yeah. 
So yeah. so pre-mill people are saying they're just as, you know, both of those categories, mm-hmm. very, very different from each other, but that we are living in the time before that. So it's all about when Christ returns. Christ returns before the millennium. And the nature of what is that return. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the return. So in premillennialism, Christ returns before the millennial reign. Yep. And then amillennialism. Yeah, amillennialism um, typically spiritualizes this. And says, um, I when I used to be Amil, mm-hmm. and I um, my wife didn't let me put it on the car, but I bought a bumper sticker <laughs> that said, honk if you're enjoying the millennium. And so, <laughs> that's a very Robert yeah. sticker. <laughs> <laughs> but that it is saying that it is happening mm-hmm. now, that this is, um, and again, it's just the church era, the time that we live in now after Christ, that it's all going on now, and Christ will come back the one big definitive time at the end of it, and that we are living in the in the interim, but that these descriptions about what goes on in that interim mm-hmm. are spiritual reality. Right, awe is a term of negation, so yeah. it's literally no millennium, right. mm-hmm. so no literal thousand years. It's all spiritualized, yeah. and it's all happening right now, and then Christ returns at the end of this <clears throat> age, the yeah. millennial age right. for all And so even though what you said right there had a little bit of post in it, is that Amillennial and postmillennial are the closest yeah. of the two, is that Christ return at the end, but that a postmill person would say, but it's actually going to physically be fulfilled, these promises that we have. Mm-hmm. I see. A yeah. divine, you know, a peaceful, long reign of Christ on the earth here is physically realized yeah. when Christ comes back. Yeah, and I think that's, I don't know if we even define the, the the millennium, but that's important. Is We have all of these vast, glorious gospel promises, we, we would say gospel promises, yeah. throughout the Old Testament that, that Christ is going to fulfill, that the nations will come rushing in to the Messiah, and there will be um, peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness, and the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, well, when's that going to happen, right? But even there, like people fight over that, about what do, are those spiritualized, say right. the Amil person, right. are they actual, um, but they're, they're going to be in this completely unique time where Christ has physically shown up and right. is standing there reigning right. in the same way incarnate. that like uh, incarnate again here at pre-mill, or is it that the church is carrying that out and that they are mm-hmm. realized out in the world post-mill? So even the nature of those promises and how that would actually play out is very much disagreed yeah. on. Mm. Yeah, and 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 the I think it's important the, to understand that that the the all uh, millennialist there's really three primary ways that they see that playing out. So they don't believe in a, a literal millennium, but they believe those promises will play out either in the church, in the life of the church, um, or in the heavenly realm right now, where where Christ is reigning and and the saints that have gone mm-hmm. are experiencing that, or or in the eternal states. Yeah, when that After is the end. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The uh, yeah, I, for me personally, I I, I was Amil as well. Were you Amil or Premil before you were post mill? Um, I was pre mill and, and probably didn't know much about it. Okay, yeah, just kind of. <laughs> it's just yeah, what I was, I, I'm an American. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was born into Big Eva. Yeah, it was the operating I like burgers system. Burgers and hot dogs. Right, pre mill. Right. <laughs> you know? and I'm waiting for the rapture. Yeah, yeah and I'm yeah, waiting right. for the rapture. That's 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 basically. It. I like. I right. uh, <laughs> see. I was on mill because Tim Keller was on mill. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um. So I, whenever I took my Reformation red pill, I no. Before, whenever I became light roast Calvinist, kind of like the mm-hmm. David Platts and the mm-hmm. Matt Chandlers and all that. Yeah. That's whenever I was like, well, they're Amil. That makes sense yeah. to me. I yep. just kind of adopted it. And then it was whenever I actually started studying this stuff right. and really getting into it and making sense of all the passages, interpreting the more complicated, like you said, in mm-hmm. light of the ones that are clearer. Mm-hmm. And then that's whenever I came to the post-mill view. And I remember when I was going through that journey, R.C. Sproul said <laughs> that all millennialism is like the parking lot of eschatological 
views. Right. Like you, you pull out of the pre-mill, you get into the parking lot, and you're waiting to go home to the post-mill. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but like, I think what you described there in your journey is very indicative of a lot of mm -hmm. us is saying like, there are these other commitments that we have for like, what is the gospel and how does it play out? Yeah. Yeah. That then as you finally come around to examining this issue and actually looking at it squarely and not just receiving the baggage of right. Americana, that you actually then will change how you view. It's yeah. part of the whole red pill packet. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the red pill analogy really works here. And I, and I think something that, that we really need to spend some time talking about, and we, and we already we already hit on it, but is how the, the default operating system for 95% mm -hmm. of uh, Americans yeah. is dispensational um, theology, and, and they don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. right. I, I, that that was me. I think that was most of ours. Um, th there's this quote that um, Lewis has in The Abolition of Man. Mm. And he's talking about how, how students were being taught um, subjectivism as opposed to objectivism, right. to that it's their feelings that's what's true, not actually what's true objectively in the world. And uh, he says, <clears throat> it's not a theory that um, they put into his mind, um, their minds. So it's talking about the teacher's in the minds of the students. It's not a theory they put into his mind, but an assumption, which 10 years hence, its origin forgotten and its presence unconscious will condition him to take one side in a controversy, which he has never recognized as a controversy at all. Right. And so this is part of even what we're wanting to do here is, is to show you, you know, that this historically, that that's actually a, a novel perspective. Mm. Right. And then perhaps you can even well, give and, us I, and I think people would be, I mean, most people I talk to are shocked when they say no one used the word rapture right. at all mm. 250 years like ago. Like left behind is not part of the canon? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay, right. okay. Acts that's 29, right. isn't that synonymous? <laughs> right, right, behind right. one? Like, isn't that supposed that to the same thing? But, so, but yeah, that this, this invention of this theology was... This theology being dispensational premillennialism. Right. right. Yeah. And, and yeah, dispensationalism is is created in response to theological liberalism. I want to try to be as, as charitable. This is one I think we can steal, man. And we we have mm -hmm. great respect for John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. And there are there are lots of people, Dallas Seminary folk, who are doing great things and part of the broader, we talked about last time, reformed camp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are good people that we want to uh, commend when where we, we can commend them. And so like the origin of this, this came from people wanting to stick to biblicism, mm -hmm. wanting to stick to be Bereans, prove it in the Bible, show yep. me yeah, where yeah. in the Bible. That's good. And that the theological liberalism of the day that Jesus wasn't really raised, he was just raised in our hearts. Right. That, that you don't need to believe in the virgin birth to have, you know, what we today would call liberal Protestantism, that this was a response to that to say no take the Bible literally. If it says Israel will get their land back, that there'll be a third temple, then we should take all of those things yeah. and, and claim them to be true. Mm -hmm. And we would, we would want to affirm that impulse. Absolutely. But that what we would want to question is, did you accept a kind of enlightenment view about how to read the scriptures? Yeah, right? that's And good. what does literally true mean? Well, speaking of how do we read the scriptures, let's move from, because we're going to get into a little bit more of outlining the dispensationalism in a second. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of arguing against it a little bit. But we need to... In order to have a coherent understanding of your eschatological framework, whether yeah. it's pre, post, awe, whatever, uh, you we've got to talk about the book of Revelation. Yeah. We've mm -hmm. got to have yeah. our interpretive framework for Revelation. And so if uh, one of you guys can outline the four basic uh, the four basic 
hermeneutical. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there, there's, there's four ways really to, to read Revelation. There's the historicist view, there's the idealist view, there's the preterist view, and there's the futurist view. So the historicist view is, is the idea that the book of Revelation and the events in it the, the, are pointing to literal things that will actually happen throughout the course of human history, mm-hmm. starting with the apostles, through the end of days, through the eschaton, the, the final time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's seeing that as mapping on to human history after the apostles. That's the that's the historicist view. So you're constantly reading the newspaper, looking right. for but, that, but in particular, you're doing that for things that have over, like just as of right now, the last two thousand and twenty four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that it's not necessarily your newspaper today. That it might be I a see. history book more mm-hmm. likely than it will be a newspaper. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But it could it could, yeah. could be today. The, the, it right. could be right. it could be today as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then the idealist view is really just sees Revelation as a theological um, poem, really, that, that is just showing the, the great battle between evil and good and how evil will seem to win for a little bit, but then ultimately good and Christ will ultimately triumph. And so it's just going to interpret it as a kind of this enigmatic poem about that that great conflict. And that pretty much maps on to amillennialism. Most, Most um, amill mm-hmm. people are idealists. Right, right. Yeah. So we've got the historicist, which is very uncommon now. Right. Um, that's not a very popular, that, that one's totally old news. Yeah, in the sub-apostolic period here, that, that was very common in the, the early church um, and even up through <clears throat> the Reformation kind of times, there mm-hmm. was a lot of people that had this one, but it's really fallen on on hard times mm-hmm. here has the gospel Sorry, has gone into the whole world right and it's like that like western civilization mapping onto kind of thing seems sort of like a dead enterprise yeah. all right so we've got the historicist then you said we've got the idealist which pretty much maps onto yeah. amillennialism and then you have the futurist which sees the uh, book of revelation primarily talking about events that were still waiting to happen and so right. that's that's kind of the, the line between the historicist and then the futurist the whole historicist like you said robert is going to look back through human history and see these plot points, the futurist is going to say, no, actually, we are primarily waiting right. for these things to happen. We are waiting for the Battle of Armageddon. We are we are waiting for, for these things. And that's more of the newspaper one, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's no, the one that's where right. we're looking. I was conflating that a little bit. He was, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where we're looking right now, like, okay, this, this is pointing to the possible fulfillment of this prophecy back yep. there. And then, oh, look, there's a red heifer. That there's a blood moon. on Gorbachev's head <laughs> is <laughs> right? totally the mark of the beast. That's, yeah. 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 Yeah, oh, truly. Yeah. And Late Obama, oh yeah, mm-hmm. he was the Antichrist. Right, yes. yes. Well, Until Trump was. Until Trump Until was. Trump was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then there, there's the the preterist view. Um, and even here we have to divide the baby. There, there's the full preterist view and the partial preterist view. Yep. And right. preterism um, is the belief that the events of Revelation happened in the past, primarily with the destruction of of the, um, the uh, temple in AD 70. Yeah, that it was future to them when they were writing right. it, but that it's past to us now. Right. Yeah. And it's so, just- so the partial preterist um, thinks most of that has already happened, but then we're still waiting on some of it to be fulfilled, Revelation 21, 22. And then the full preterist, which is a really niche, obscure- yeah, almost all gone. Yeah, yeah, almost all gone, is the idea that it's all happened, including the resurrection and, and all that. Mm. And so our position would be what was called partial preterism. Yeah. Right? yeah. And yeah. that is just simply the Latin word for past. Is right. that most things in the Bible were, you know, for me, this is this is we'll get to this later, but like this was the the real essence of the red pill for me mm-hmm. was to say that Jesus was speaking in, you know, when he's prophesying or John when he's writing the book of Revelation, meant something to his original audience for them to look for. Yeah. That yes, there can be a greater fulfillment of it that is 
you know, beyond what they would have imagined, but that it had content for the right. original. And there audience. was an urgency that yeah. these this be um, uh, distributed back. to the to, to the churches because this is going to shortly take place. Right. And, and how, he, how many times does Revelation say so that? Yeah, I mean, it's it, right it, around the corner. Chapter right. one, the yeah. things that must soon take place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that that he wasn't kidding? It wasn't like. Soon meaning two thousand years, right. like like that was not the right. the meaning of those. Right, words. and and that goes back. I think we talked about last time, but a, a hermeneutic, hermeneutic is just um, a a theory of interpretation. How do we read the Bible well? Is understanding that all the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Yeah, and that revelation that's really important to to understand as well. And once you understand that how massive of an issue eighty seventy was, this mm. changing of epochs of eons. Yeah. Um. And that shadow was looming over all of the writing of the New Testament. It 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 is hard to overstate how important that shift in paradigm um, is for understanding rightly the the New Testament. Well, I'm showing again showing my cards, but yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. yeah, that those those prophecies were you know Jesus is is there's so many times you know we we're talking primarily about the Book of Revelation, but I'll get to this later. Mine is was primarily in in the Gospels of Jesus is talking about that, you know, run for the hills when you see this day coming. Like, mm-hmm. he was literally talking you to the, You run for the hills. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a, a, what was the early church father who who wrote about this, where there, it said, run for the hills when, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by Bombing armies. Well, that, was that Josephus? I think, no, it wasn't was Josephus. It, it was an early, it was, I think it may have been Eusebius. But he said that uh, whenever, it's he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Typically, what you would do in that situation is all get behind mm-hmm. the walls, like right, go yeah. into the city. Right. That's and, why they're there. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, because the early Christians remembered the teachings of their Lord and Messiah, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills. Right. Scatter. Right. So yeah. the, actually, there was a huge contingency of Christians who escaped the, the siege and the horrible slaughter yeah. and that of is, the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus. Josephus tells us the history of what actually happened. Right. And it yeah, was full on. <laughs> I was thinking of there was a church father who who used that as an apologetic right. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then, and then the good. history though of like what actually happened was that this was like you know Schindler's List level, mm. just absolutely oh, horrible, apocalyptic, horrible, all pun intended, nightmare of that. There were just how many like a hundred thousand people yeah. were crucified once Ugh. the Romans took the town and they were just. Furious, right. and like you know, you've seen maybe if you look at history where Titus, you know, there was this carving where he's mm-hmm. marching these Jews through Rome, and there's somebody's carrying the menorah, mm-hmm. and that this, it's this famous carving about how they were so furious at the Jews and that they just mm-hmm. demolished their civilization mm-hmm. at this point, and it really was an absolute nightmare of a siege. And Jesus predicted it, we would say, as preterists, mm-hmm. partial preterists, that and and it meant there was an important prophecy for them to. Here yeah. and to obey. Yeah. One piece of it that when I was going through, because I, whenever I came to post millennialism, it was pretty. It was pretty cool because me and the two other pastors of the church plant that I planted in Los Angeles, we were all three saying, "Okay, we just kind of inherited this Amel position, but we really want to get into this." We were reading the three views books, we were studying it like crazy, and we were also preaching through the Book of Daniel, mm. and and which is has do it. all kind, yeah, <laughs> Daniel all, two, yeah, yeah Daniel two. That was that was oh, one of the huge. big ones for me. Yep. But uh, and when I was talking with <clears throat> one of my other uh, pastors, Daniel Margheim, his big hangup was. Most it seems like most of the scholarship right now, critical scholarship, has the writing of Revelation post seventy A.D. Yeah, 
And so for him, that was a big thing was like, okay, I, what if it was written post 70 AD, it doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Yeah. We, we have, as partial preterists, post mill people, if we want to stay true to the scriptures, yeah. we have to take a, a early date. Right. For, and that, but that their entire, the critical scholarly view is the unspoken assumption is there's no such thing doesn't as happen. Right. That's exactly, exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so this yeah. had to be written after because nobody knows. They're highly the invested. In, they're highly invested yeah. in it not being prophecy because right. they don't believe in that. But they mm-hmm. do that with yeah. the entire Bible. Then right. is that if there's prophecy in the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels, then it has to be written after seventy, after it's had a game of telephone for mm-hmm. a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the assumption should be for us as people who value the word of God as what it says it is, is when we read there is a prophecy that was spoken beforehand. Yeah. And Always. and that really, yeah. I think from, from my point of view, I, we haven't talked about this, but I think only the gospel of John has any excuse we could say being written after AD 70, because that's the one that doesn't mm. have the prophecy in it versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all talking about this AD 70 stuff. Oh, right. The Olivet Discourse. Right. Which, yeah. you, you know what? We can go ahead and get into that because, so we've given uh, the broad overview of the three views, pre, ah, and post, and then we've get, gotten into the four different interpretive frameworks. Do you want to, for our audience, explain dispensationalism? Before we get into premillennialism, or I'm sorry, our post-mill, our defensive postmillennialism, yeah. I, it would be helpful for some people who, they're just getting into studying eschatology. Right. What is this eschatological framework, this view that has dominated the American mind for the last well, century? As Pastor Brooks said here, this is the water that I think most people are swimming in and have no idea of, you know, as a fish, tell me about water. This is just mm-hmm. absolutely where you where you live. Mm-hmm. And so the idea, so there's a, a, a dispensationalist scholar who died a few years ago named Ryrie, and he said the essence of dispensationalism is that the fundamental distinction is between Israel, physical Israel, and the spiritual church. Mm. That that really is the heart. And that I, I used to think that, you know, the word dispensation means like it's it's used in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is that it an epoch of time, a way, an economy of how God was working in the world. And we would agree with that idea yeah. that, you know, the whole thing we talked about last time of covenants is that God does have particular ways of relating to humanity that develop and grow uh, over time, mm-hmm. like watching a uh, acorn turn into a sapling, turn into a young tree, turn into a mighty oak. Mm-hmm. That that same growing up process that God is going through with us, most dispensationalists have a lot more sort of sealed off, very, mm-hmm. very separate that you've got an oak tree, a cherry tree, and an apple And these tree. are different dispensations wherein God deals with his people differently. Is yes. That, yeah. And yeah. the standards of judgment are different. Yeah. And there's a lot of that that we can get behind. Mm-hmm. But the part where we really need to say this goes against the entire grain of scripture is that that separation into physical versus spiritual. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we can't get behind. And that's actually the heart of dispensationalism. Right. So that just doesn't work from the Bible. Yeah, yeah, and, and it matters because there is, uh, it, it really is, how do you understand the, the entire story? And, and how do, as Christians, how do we understand the Old Testament? Are, are, yeah. these, prof, are, are these promises and, and um, prophecies for, for us? Mm. Um, or are there things that aren't for us, that right. they are specifically for physical um, Israel that, that are yet to be? And your, um, your sermon series uh, right now, we'll be getting back to in a few weeks, of mm-hmm. just going through the life of Abraham, right. is that Paul makes it, 
abundantly clear in Galatians in particular, which you've referenced so many times right. in your sermons, is to say these promises are for us. Is that I just wrote down a few verses here of thing that Jews and Gentiles are called the seed of Abraham in Galatians 3.29, that we are called heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. We, mm-hmm. I'm Gentile, in uh, Galatians 3.16, that mm-hmm. over and over again, these Old Testament promises are applied to the New Testament people of God, and this attempt to just, like, cut it in half yeah, doesn't work. We were mm-hmm. talking about that the other day, about uh, a lot of people use it as a pejorative, but they would say that we're, they were, they would accuse us of replacement theology, mm-hmm. yeah, right. um, which we were talking, uh, it's like, depending on what you mean by that, yes, but it's a weird way to say it, right? you know, um, because, and what I'm, what, what is also important to note is that our episode last week mm-hmm. on um, Dark Roast Reformed Covenant Theology, yeah. th- that's also uh, a big juxtaposition to this dispensationalism, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So there's like, because d- dispensationalism isn't just how do we view revelation. It's how do we understand and come to all, it's an interpretive framework for the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where Westminsterian covenant theology comes yeah. in as such a comfort because it's like, oh, actually this dispensationalism that's only 100, 150 years old, mm-hmm. that's pretty novel on the scene, uh, doesn't really stand up against this historic understanding, this covenant view of right. uh, of how God relates to his people, right? And they know that, is that it has morphed so much over its history that dispensationalism has changed and changed and changed mm. to the point where it's becoming less and less distinguishable from covenant theology, <laughs> is mm-hmm. that like they are giving up so many, but that, that nugget in the middle, that unmovable diamond at the core for them of the distinction between the physical and the spiritual, as even that's got to go, right? Mm. If you're mm. going to make sense of the biblical text, right? And and we, so we would say that that God does not have two distinct redemptive people. Yeah, He has one. He has um, the Israel of God, which, yes. which is the church. Yeah. Um, now that's that's not to say um, that God still doesn't have a particular redemptive plan where a, a mass amount of Jews will be saved. Romans I mean, eleven, right? Yeah. yeah. And so being post mill, <laughs> we think that's going to happen all, all over the world, right? And there are some who see Israel now as just as pagan as Hamas or whatever. That's one perspective. That's not the one I take. I I, I think God still does have a, a redemptive plan where there will be a, a huge influx, a huge mm. salvation that comes upon Israel, but it will be into the church through Jesus Christ. Right Now, to be fair, dispensationalists would say they'd be saved by Christ as well, so I don't want to yeah. misrepresent that. But I think one of the verses that, I mean, there, there's so many we could go to. But that that speak to to this, how this is one grand story mm. of the gospel of Jesus Christ redeeming one people is Galatians, I think it's 3 8, where it says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, yeah. preached the gospel mm-hmm. beforehand to Abraham, yeah. saying, In you, all the nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. What is that called that happening? It's called the gospel. Right. Yeah. Is the gospel what we, what we preach to people as Christians to be mm-hmm. saved? Well, Paul said that the gospel was preached to Abraham. In this promise I'm giving you, this is a seedling of what the gospel will flourish yeah. into. Right. Yeah. And we if say, only the New Testament had like a hall of heroes of people who <laughs> believed what we should believe and the way that we should believe it. Right. Because it's such a different God. I'm being sarcastic. Right. But like, like, like <laughs> Hebrews 11, what are all of these people commended for? Right. That it just walks through the Old Testament of, of us, that right. this is 
the same faith that yeah. we are called to have, yeah. that we have more information, that yeah, there's a greater sure. burden on us to believe even more, yeah. but that they believed in their time as God had revealed it during their dispensation, <laughs> if you want to use that word, but that we have the same faith mm -hmm. that we're called to have that we see in them in this hall of right. heroes. And, and I found too that against, since dispensationalism is the default software for so many people and they don't even realize um, realize it, they, they also don't understand where this is headed in, in that theology. It is that literally the, the temple will be rebuilt, Christ will be there, and animal sacrifices will be brought to bear again, not to atone, but as, as a memorial. I mean, this is where that leads, which yeah. we, I mean, I, I feel like the, the writer of Hebrews would set his hair on fire and say, yeah. how much clearer right. can I be? Um, about this. No more sacrifices. No. Yeah. And, and yeah. some, some yeah. would say, again, it's, it's morphed into so many directions. You, there isn't a one-size-fits-all uh, dispensationalism. That's why, um, again, we want to be fair. MacArthur even says he, he doesn't like the word dispensationalism to describe him um, because there's so many variants of that. But I don't know if his term of leaky dispensationalism is, is much more descriptive. <laughs> um, but uh, some believe that so all of these kingdom promises in the Old Testament of you know Second Samuel seven that there will be um, a king from the line of David to to establish this kingdom that <clears throat> that's what they're waiting on to actually happen um, in Israel and that Jesus came to 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 do that for the Jews. I, I am here to do this, but the Jews rejected. The Messiah. Mm. And so because of that, he, in a sense, pulled back the plan. And now we're waiting for the millennium when that will actually happen, what initially was meant to happen. Um, there are many problems with that. One of them being they tried to make him king. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. they, they tried to. to, to, to oh, Palm to, Sunday. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they, yeah. they wanted. And he said he, he, he pushed back on that and yeah. did not allow them. I can hear in my mind some dispensational person is out there objecting to what we're saying is that you have not broken off my claim. You have not answered my claim that I am taking the Bible literally. Yes. What kind this of biblicist huge. are you, mm -hmm. you reformed people, yeah. you, if you are going to explain away, mm -hmm. you might as well be a mill. You're just going <laughs> to spiritualize it all away and just right. get rid of it. It could mean anything to anybody at any time. Aren't you just explaining away these passages right. that we're we're coming up with spiritualization right. to get rid of what yeah there should be a third temple yeah, yeah. and 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 again there we, we appreciate the impulse yeah. so right. to, to the sources to, to the scriptures um and I, I can't remember what I did or didn't say last episode so that I may be overlapping but that that was MacArthur's challenge to us as covenant theologians is show me in the Old Testament text where it says that this will be fulfilled in the church mm -hmm. to which we would respond. That's not how prophecy works. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Prophecy is a seed that's planted that then blooms over time. Yeah. This was Jesus whole point in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus yeah. where they were confounded that the Messiah was um, killed yeah, and yeah. suffered um, and um, for forgetful that he must rose again. And, and the Lord called them slow of heart to, it should have been obvious that this yeah. is what you foolish right, calls Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. This is all, it was all pointing to me. Yeah. Um, and so we just say, uh, we take the literal parts literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We take the prophetic parts prophetically, expecting yeah. the New Testament to clarify mm. and allow it to speak for itself about that. But you don't, we don't interpret the Bible, the prophetic parts going to it and saying, where is the fulfillment clearly laid out in the prophecy? Mm -hmm. That's that's not how how that, that works. Well, 
one thing I want to get into with this is, so we're, we're making our case for post-millennialism, but we're also inherently then making our case against the other two views. Yeah. And so I, in studying this and you realize ideas have consequences, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and like I said, at the, the top of the episode that your view of the end impacts your understanding of engaging in God's mission right now. So what are the inherent dangers in premillennialism and amillennialism? And maybe we can even say what are the dangers in postmillennialism too? We can kind of do some self-examination there, but what are the dangers of adopting this premillennial dispensational view? What does that lend itself towards that we would say is an, is an unbiblical way of understanding God's mission? Well, to try to stay like positive about it, like what, what Pastor Brooks just said, is that there that impulse to say, it's in the Bible, I believe it. Mm-hmm. That is a great impulse. These are going to happen, yeah. that these things are real. But the the question about the the timing piece, that we, we would say that premill people are, are not, enjoying, you know, smelling the roses here of where we actually are, Mm -hmm. is that we have got so much more in Christ Mm. than they're willing to uh, accept in terms of what has happened at the present. What has Christ done? What has the resurrection, ascension, session of Jesus Christ accomplished in the world? When are we? Mm-hmm. And, and that that is something that is, is a real danger is just this bunker mentality of I've got to hunker down and uh, Benedict option away and say that I'm just waiting for Jesus to come and hit the big reset button uh, on, on the world is, yeah. is a real danger of the, the pre-mill position. I, I call it the bunker mentality. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was raised with was the <laughs> idea that um, it's all going to burn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the that was the refrain. Yeah. It's all going to burn when yeah, something right. goes wrong or something. The impulse was it's all going to burn anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember when I started like studying scripture and just see, studying scripture and looking broadly at the narrative of scripture. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered that not sitting well with me anymore mm-hmm. of like it's all going to burn. That doesn't seem like the like the narrative arc. That doesn't right. seem like the direction yeah. That scripture is taking right. us. Or if you take a historical thing, somebody asked Martin Luther what he would do if he knew that the Lord was coming back tomorrow. And he said, plant, plant a tree. A tree. Ah, it's just yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah, that's just like the opposite of the Bible and of the historic church position. Mm-hmm. So the so the danger then of pre-mill is that, I mean, that I think it was a tweet from John mm-hmm. MacArthur, the we lose down here yeah. mentality. Oh, it's a right. sermon. He said it. I yeah, 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 it was a whole, yeah, yeah. whole sermon. Which is just so rich because he keeps winning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is the best accidental post-millennialist there right, ever yes, was. Yeah. Um, I think a, a, a huge <laughs> danger here, down. though, for, for me, which just struck me like a ton of bricks as um, a parent, is you don't have confidence in the covenant promises that God made for your children. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so I remember having the thought, again, if I've shared this before, perhaps, but it's worth repeating because it was big. I remember having the thought when I was a teenager, if it's all going to burn and most people will go to hell anyways, why in the world would I have children? Yeah. Why in the world would I have children? And if all of these Old Testament promises are not for me, but are for the Jews, well, then I have no confidence Mm -hmm. that the Lord has made promises to my children unto a thousand generations of his steadfast love of his mercy, of course, being for me and for my children, for those who keep covenant, remember to do the commandments. Um, But so in the dispensational framework, those those are primarily for, for, for Jews now. And and this is where it kind of gets a little bit confusing. Like what, what is for me and, and what isn't some of this is kind of in Jesus for me, 
but I don't take hold of it with both hands. Like this is God staring me in the eyes mm-hmm. yeah. and saying, this is my intention for you and for your children. That's good. Um, and so if it's only going to get worse and there's not covenant promises to your children, well then <laughs> maybe two, but one of them is probably going to end up in hell. You know, mm. what's ironic about, about even that's that. That's an overstatement. No. I don't want to mischaracterize, sure, sure. but that's truly the How thought I, I had. That, yeah. that is the thought I had when I was thinking about family planning as it were. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was kind of raised in thinking like any second now, any day now, yeah. and I can remember just being like, please God, just wait a little bit so I can get married and have sex. That was, that was, please <laughs> yeah. just, I just want to try. I just want that. But it was, and it was because that's, there's a CS Lewis quote about that where it's like, uh, um, we, I, I, I couldn't imagine heaven being so much more wonderful than mm-hmm. whatever pleasures that I could oh, yeah. imagine. It was like, I, I wish I, I could. Oh yeah. It, it's like trying to, to, to tell a child why chocolate is better than sex. Yeah, that's right. That's and what him just not having the categories for yeah. that. Like, wait, can I have chocolate? <laughs> but can, can I have I, chocolate? Can I do that? Right. It's like, no, you won't be thinking of <laughs> yeah. the chocolate. Right. Yeah. Chocolate <laughs> won't be on <laughs> error. Right. Yeah. 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 No, but, but I think, uh, there's the, like you were getting to this bunker mentality or the John MacArthur, we lose down here kind of mentality. And, you know, I see that a lot of people, because I've, I've, I've hit on this a bunch of times on Twitter, um, a lot of people get frustrated about that, that kind of um, way of characterizing it. But there's, a, there's an irony to the fact that a lot of the people who are actually engaging in the culture wars and things like that have been premillennial folks. And it's like they're doing it in spite of their right. eschatology. Right. Yeah. And because people will point that out. And, and I'll say those, I think those are some radical pre-mill people who really love the Lord and just obey him, obey him, right. obey him. Right. Yeah. Because that's what we do. We obey the Lord Jesus. Amen. And you're <laughs> doing it in spite of mm-hmm. an understanding, your eschatological view that says it really is almost nihilistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that shows the bankruptcy of a philosophy or a worldview when you, the impossibility of living consistently with it. So like the, the atheist has to live on borrowed capital. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. like that uh, he, any moral statement or value judgment he makes on anything at all yeah. is inconsistent with yeah. his actual. And I think it's the same thing with the dispensationalist on Monday morning, you kind of have to, you have to at least not acknowledge it and get, go to work acting. Why as would you, I, why would you have children? Why would you start a school? Right. Why would you run a business? Well, you, the thing is you wouldn't. And that's why we are where I think that there's right. a huge, one of the major reasons that we are where we are as a culture, I think goes back to mm-hmm. this, we lose down here mentality mm-hmm. because for the last 60, 70 years, the left has been infiltrating all our institutions. They've been building, not really building, Christians right. built all these institutions. Right. And then they're, they've been infiltrating it. Yeah, yeah. non-Disney, <laughs> yeah. Built all these institutions, right. whether it was from Hollywood, which was Christian, which our government, we used to openly acknowledge Christ at all layers of government. Yeah. You know, we built all these institutions, but then whenever we got steeped Mm -hmm. in this we lose down here mentality you stop building you stop thinking generationally Mm -hmm. right and so once we get to that place we're we the benedict option we've just kind of bunkered down and then they've taken all these institutions from us and so i think i think there's a there's a reality to the fact that it's actually dangerous like the idea that we lose down here and it, I think it has produced like a lot of our cultural rot can kind of go back to that. Well, and it might not have been that dangerous depending upon which enemy we had to face. 
But what's really important, we mentioned this, you know, with the four um, tumors, is that it's a subspecies of Marxism. And what's so special about Marxism is it has an eschatology. Oh, yeah. They have an end game. They have, you know, Mm. Marx's original idea of the proletariat uprising and that the communist state is that there is a future that they are working towards. Right. And that these kids today who, you know, riot and go crazy on their college campus and burn stuff down, they're willing to destroy and take losses for themselves because they have a vision of taking what they see there in their time at communist Mm -hmm. school, communist Mm -hmm. university, and writing it all over the country. Well, they have a future that they've experienced in their sacramental, you know, liturgies at university that now they want to transcribe out into the world. And it's, it's exactly what it's, it's a, it's a parody of Christianity that says, I see the future. I want to write it into the world now, but it is a Mm -hmm. hierarchy of, of oppression. Well, that's why they call it progressive, right? They have this view that that we are progressing Mm -hmm. towards this really mushy kind of vague undefined end, but it's going to be a utopia because yeah. the government's going to have all the control yeah. and work out all the good for everybody. Right. Right. Um, were you going to, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, Ben Merkel had, had a, this talk and the title alone of the talk is worth the price of admission, but it was called, um, you might not be Pato and post mill, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. Mm. Um, that is, wow. you oh. might not be paid on post mill, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. I.e., yes, we expect the, the, the children to be part of this movement, and yes, we have a vision for where this is headed. Um, but if your eschatology says that it's all going to burn anyways, and then you see a BLM riot, you think, yeah, it looks about right. That's and, it. Yeah. And that's yeah, why this that's whole exactly thing with right. the schools, you know, if like we need to be indoctrinating them into the trans and the gay at the earliest ages, they have a vision for your children. There's mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. I remember seeing a talk when I was getting into all of this from, I think it was the Toby Sumter talk. And he, he described the, in the sixties, Mallory Millett, uh, she was a feminist and she, she went into this meeting of feminists who were literally going through a liturgy of their plan on how they intend Mm -hmm. to, uh, infiltrate our institutions. And they, I I mean, it was a Mm step-by-step and they would say it out loud, like, like, a. Uh, like a chant yeah. almost. But even yeah. government schooling, I mean, from the get-go was yeah. the secular agenda to get the kids. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the point is, is is what, to get to your point, is they have a powerful idea, a powerful eschatology mm-hmm. that has captured their imagination and they are willing to sacrifice for it. They're willing to go do whatever it takes to build it. Yeah. And I think they've been doing that systematically. And knowing that they're not even going to reap the fruit of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But they're, but they've, now they have, they've infiltrated our schools. They've mm-hmm. look, they did it. And, and they, we, they planned it. And 60 years later, yeah. 70 years later, yep. they did it. And so much of American Christianity is impotent because it's cut off from the gospel. If, if Abraham had the gospel preached to him beforehand, mm. then you don't get the full picture just by reading the parts of the New Testament that are, you know, easy for you to understand, you think. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of having whole Bible theology, instead of having all the covenants, all the right. things that God has revealed, sing the Psalms, understand that, you know, Jesus is the Davidic king over and over and, and over Yeshua, again. And Yeshua, the new Joshua. Right. Who is making conquest against his yeah. enemies. <laughs> Ooh, come on now. <laughs> and, and this is where, like, the Hebrew roots movement and that people are just coming up with crazy ways to try to like, it's too truncated. I don't get Mm -hmm. this eschatological vision from my limited Americana worst version of dispensationalism. And they want 
more. They want the whole Bible. Yeah. As Christians, they know they should have it, but they don't know how to mm-hmm. read it. Yeah. They don't know what to do with it. So they end up putting on yarmulkes and going and making, you know, mm-hmm. the Hebrew roots crazy stuff that people do, keep kosher and things. Right, right. They're just so desperate, like, I've got to have more of mm-hmm. God, more of a plan for where is he going, where is this coming from? It all must be connected, but they don't know how to put it together. And and part of the way you see this as well is in something like like architecture. Man, you know, that's huge. If, if if this is not going to last, why would we build beautiful buildings that take decades to build? I mean, if yeah. I remember going to this is before I was Reformation red pilled or whatever, whatever that is what we're calling it. Or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> literally the name of the podcast. Um, but going to Sproul's Church and it being thunderstruck, it, it did what it was designed to do mm. to me. I felt like I'm in a place of holiness and yeah. transcendence, and this is glorious. The the aesthetic, the the beauty was was doing its work on me mm-hmm. as God intended, which is very different than just having a pole barn because you expect you don't expect this to be here for fifty years or a strip yeah. mall church. Yeah, right, or right. and again, I mean, the Lord provides what's you know there, there's seasons of that, but having a vision of oh, but what if it was beautiful? Yeah, and let's make something beautiful that will last. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's. The reality is, is that we're not thinking like that in the church. Right. You know, um, I think we've we've become, and we talked about this a couple episodes uh, episodes ago, that we've become so gnostic in our thinking that yeah. it's all spiritual instead of understanding that we are embodied souls and that our actually the architecture says a lot about what we believe about God. Mm-hmm. Right. It says a lot about what we believe about the nature, even eschatology, like we're talking about. Yeah. What direction are we, do, do we need to build sturdy things that'll be beautiful, mm-hmm. sturdy things that'll be right. here for thousands of years? Yeah. Or, you know, or is the strip mall just and even And even beyond architecture, architecture is a really important point, but also then how do we worship on a Sunday morning? We get on our knees, we raise our hands, having this idea that the eternity will be embodied. Mm-hmm. Your eschatology impacts how you worship. Like, mm. like if you think it's all just about, like, you're going to be the see-through version of you with a golden O over your head and dove wings glued onto your yeah. back as you sit a cloud playing a U-shaped little guitar, like, if that's your vision of the future, if that's your vision of eternity, then, yeah, you're just going to have a brain dump download of hearing the pastor go on and and have an altar call and that form of American Christianity makes sense to what you think the future is. Right. But if you say, I'm going, like, Mm. think about the end of the Gospels when Jesus eats fish with the disciples and, you know, all of these embodied, put your finger where the holes were made in me. Like, this is the future that we have to look forward to. Yeah, we're going to have embodied worship. Mm. Yes, we're going to raise our hands, kneel down, all of these things because we have the what we believe about the eschaton the future impacts what we do now and what we think life is and who we are it's it's aslan last battle further up further in yeah. narnia yeah. you know i remember more real than this narnia exactly i loved mm. i mean lewis is so great about giving um imaginative handles for us to mm-hmm. understand a biblical worldview but the idea of when when it's all over and they're they're in eternity it's Narnia, but better, bigger, more. It's familiar. I know that yeah. mountain, but it's more. It's more solid. Same with the Great Divorce, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's everything is more real, more solid. Yeah. I that ethereal view of yeah. of eternity. I you know you know with your wings and your harps and we're all in an, yeah. an eternal worship service. I always thought that sounded like hell. Yeah. Right. You know that I did not yes. think that sounded like heaven. Right. Yeah. You know, and I was always like, God, just that's why I wanted God, please just wait so I can have sex and get right. married. Please. I don't I, I don't want to go It's better glory. than burning yeah. my skin off for yeah. eternity. Right. But you know, you know I, the physical is good that yeah. you're sitting there reading Genesis one and 
as a kid and like everybody knows Genesis one, God made the world good and human beings very mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Is that again, the words that protology impacting <laughs> your eschatology, what should the end be like? Yeah. It's possible to have a sinless unfallen world that is glorious. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're pushing forward to. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, so uh, let's get into a little bit of the actual, the scriptures, the text that really convinced us for me, it was, there was a whole host of scriptures because I was, as I was coming to this, I was like taking a step back and seeing it's, first of all, the narrative arc of scripture doesn't seem to point to um, nuking, nuking (laughs) the world or the big, the big thing for me. And I heard Doug Wilson say this and it resonated exactly with me. And it was, you know, becoming a Calvinist was hard. Becoming this, I was like this. Oh, yeah. it's like oh, humbling experience, and and then and then going from credo baptism for me to pedo baptism was this. Whoa, this is confusing and kind of tough, and uh, yeah, it's good, but it's difficult. Yeah. It's kind of disorienting. Disorienting, yeah. and then uh, the move from from amillennialism to postmillennialism for me. Wee, right. <laughs> a whole lot of fun. This is fun, you know. <laughs> Why? Because it means that heaven is going to be way more full than hell. Yeah, that's one big mm-hmm. piece of it that was mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, that tracks with the bible when i read genesis 12 right mm-hmm. and 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 this is where you see the power of the lens because yeah. i never thought that way before like yeah. of course it's going to be a vast minority who are saved right but then you start from the very beginning of the abrahamic promise and it's and it, of all the nation or all the families of the world being blessed through him and it only builds from there yeah. of the gentiles streaming in streaming in in revelation 144000 symbolic number he turns and the multitude is so vast that you can't count that can't count, right yeah. can't count I mean, that this high. is the refrain over and over again of the bigness of the victory of christ in right. the world and yeah. that's what ezekiel's temple means is he right. saw the water getting deeper, deeper and, and deeper, deeper yeah the further out you got from the temple yeah. more and more as time goes yeah. on and so for me that was that was one big piece was that step back narrative arc view <laughs> of like is it minority and small and really most people are in hell or yeah. is it this big victory like we're talking about. And then all of a sudden, everything. so that was where I was like, questioned that. Mm-hmm. Like, is that the case? Okay, mm-hmm. that that sounds right, but let's get into the text and the scripture. And then like like we talked about, uh, interpret the less clear in light of the more mm-hmm. clear. That, that's one of the reasons, that's the reason I'm post-mill, honestly, is because I think it makes the most sense of the most amount of biblical data. It's the story. It's the story that has been being that's being told. Right, right. And uh and so for me, you, you take even what is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus, the whole the gospel, mm-hmm. it's the proclamation that what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And it's here and now. Repent because the kingdom yeah. is at hand. And then Jesus says, What is the kingdom like? What and what does he what does he say? One, it's like a mustard seed. The Start small. Of seeds, yeah. And then grows up into the biggest tree in the garden. Yeah. It's yeah. like leaven. What does it leaven do? It leavens the whole oh, loaf. Yeah. And I remember going like, uh-oh. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I did. That's that's totally right. And then you read Daniel 2. The uh the rock Some that was cut that by was, no human mm-hmm. hands comes and destroys the empires of this world right. and yeah. what? Grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth and Christ is the rock. Yeah. And so all these pieces just start fitting together and I'm like Oh, oh yeah. Okay. That's it. That's it. So I'll give mine in a second, but what was for you guys, what was the passage or um, yeah. few passages that really pushed you over the edge? Yeah. Um, well, first, what, what was absolutely essential was to understand a preterist view of revelation. Yeah. And so I, I cannot 
commend highly enough the last days according to the last days according to Jesus by R.C. Sproul. Mm. Yes. Uh, it's a book, but it's also a video series. That video series. Oh my word. Um, just be careful. If, if you don't want to be convinced in a different direction, <laughs> do, do not watch it. Yeah, but the yeah. last days according to Jesus was such a blessing to me. But um, there's so many places to go. But but one that was stop me in my tracks type moment was Isaiah 65. And it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, which where I come from, of course, that's only the eternal state. But the problem was one of the benefits of that of that season will be life expectancy, mm-hmm. and you will only you'll you'll die at a hundred. Yeah, so that's, and that'll that's be young, right? Yeah, like new heavens and new earth, but You're it's talking dying? about huh? death. Yeah. Okay, so this can't be talking about the eternal state. Right. right. This has to be talking about this earth now. Yep. Yeah. And um, yep. so th- that was one of those Narnia wardrobe going through like, okay. I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I have to rethink everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so from, from from there, there's so many the the parable of of the mustard seed and the leaven. I mean, I, I you can't unsee that. Well, that's what it's like. That's it, and it's the whole. And getting back to the narrative arc, you've got the Adam and Eve story, mm-hmm. right? With the fall that destroys everything, the whole story of redemption that climaxes with the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Amen. next Adam. Yeah. And then what does he do? Does the, he, like you said at the top of the episode was that uh, with, with this post-millennial framework, it takes the dominion mandate that we are given in Genesis mm-hmm. and then gives it legs and power in the Great Commission with the Holy Spirit. I will be with you. I will yeah. be with you. And the, now we have a new dominion mandate that is playing its way out through all of history. And the thing is, if you just look at history, uh, if, if you take it in 100-year increments, you can be, you can get discouraged. Mm-hmm. In fact, we would be get, get, if we were just to do that yeah. ourselves. Yeah. I had tons of people. I was talking to Pete the other day, and he was saying, you know, when we first started talking about this, he's like, I mean, look around. Mm-hmm. It seems yeah. it's like going to heck in a handbag, right? But step back five hundred years and look at the advance of the gospel. Look at look at Korea. Look at China. Mm-hmm. Look at the gospel going forth like crazy. Right. We're going through a hard time in the yeah. West, and I don't actually expect America to get any better during my lifetime. Right? Yeah. 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 But I'm 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 looking to 200 and 300 years. Yeah. I, I think we're still part of the early church, probably, right. and mm. so we have plenty of time. Even if my blip on the timeline doesn't get better, my eschatology has nothing to do with headline news today. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, another scripture that was important for me was just Psalm 22 generally. Yeah, it's it's such a glorious psalm, but it starts off with "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, obviously, Christ on the cross, um, not accidentally. But where does it end? Um, near the end, it says, "This is verse twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, mm. and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over." The nations. Mm. So we start with Christ on the cross, his atoning work, his sacrifice, um, purchasing his people, purchasing his bride. What will that look like? All the ends of the earth shall remember, turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Come on. So that was just huge. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and you can find, these are a dime of a dozen. Yeah, there's so many of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the passage, the the narrative arc was what got me all going. I started getting into the passage. There's one, it was like the <coughs> the match that the tinder was all yeah, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the match that lit that lit the flame for me was first John 2 2. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is the, the propitiation, propitiation for, for our, our sins, sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the, the whole, whole world. world. And I realized and as I studied it, you can't, I don't think you can be a I don't know how you can be a Calvinist and 
not be post mill mm-hmm. in light of this scripture. And what mm-hmm. I mean yeah. by that is you either have to water down the word saved or propitiation, yeah, or you have to water down world. Right. And what I mean by that is uh, either if he is the propitiation for the whole world, right? If if Christ actually is the propitiation for the whole world, then in in what sense can we say that mm-hmm. is true? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, is either. He provided a way for everyone to be saved, which we don't believe as Calvinists, right? right? Limited atonement. He definitely atoned for his people. So we know that he didn't just provide a way of salvation. So then a Calvinist has to say, well, world just means the elect. Yeah. It just means the elect. But in what that would, that's like, I heard, uh, I heard Doug give an illustration on this. It's like, it's like if we said all the whole town went out to go see the fireworks show um, and it was just your family. Right. That's not You're the whole lying. town. Right. You know, that's 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 just not how it is. Right. You know? Um, and then to to illustrate the fact that we don't need it to be every single man, woman, and child, there's the, you know, all of Jerusalem and Judea. I think we talked about this. Mm-hmm. All of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to see mm-hmm. John the Baptist. Well, we don't need to say right. every man, right. woman, and we're child. We're not universalists. Exactly. Right. Was going out to see them. The Bible is using the word naturally yeah. to mm-hmm. mean the broad majority right. of the town. And when you realize that this is the fulfillment of the gospel that was preached to Abraham, it maps on perfectly. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. the families of the world. Right. right, exactly. We'll be blessed through yeah. you. Same <laughs> promise, just continuity through there. Right. Yeah. Which gets at uh, Pastor Brooks's point that we are probably in the early church, right? Yes. Because if we, if we, the only way I can understand this passage is that Christ really is the propitiation for broadly speaking, the whole world, which means all nations will come bow before the Lord Jesus before he returns. And then mm-hmm. first Corinthians 15, 15, that's a, 15. Oh, that's another huge one. Yeah. That's a huge one, yeah. right? That uh, we'll just go there. 15, 20. Um, let's see. What do we got? Yeah, I think it's 24. Um, This was one of the most important ones for me as well. Um, I'll read starting in 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So that gets rid of just ethereal up here disconnected from the world because the whole telos is him getting the kingdom. Yeah. And then comes the end when he delivers um, the kingdom to God the Father. He's after not going to give him a smoking husk. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. right. <laughs> after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Mm. The last enemy. So all of that happens before the eternal state because death wasn't killed yet. Right. And then death is killed in immortality and resurrection. Well, and that and honestly, that passage kind of is gives the the people's elbow to dispensational premillennialism because that in their framework, death is the first thing. Yeah, the the the, yeah. the, the dead rapture, in Christ yeah. rise and mm-hmm. the rapture and everything. So yeah. death gets defeated at the very beginning, and then you've got tribulation and all the rest. But this is saying no. Like death is the the last. Enemy. It's the last enemy to be defe- defeated after the nations have all come yeah. uh, to bow before the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so any other uh, go to passages you guys would go to before we move on? La- last one for me here, real quick. It was just the it's in the three synoptic gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is what's called the Olivet Discourses. Is that Jesus is prophesying uh, at the end of his uh, earthly ministry, and the extent to which it was. The, the language just really, really held me up. And like, I was a dispensational pre-mill uh, person and I could not get over of like, I go outside, the sun is shining. And so what Jesus is talking about has not 
happened yet. What do you mean with that? I don't know if we talked so, about yeah, that. Yeah, so that in um, in Matthew uh, 24, is, you, it's in all three here, but mm-hmm. like that you can find these places where uh, Jesus says the sun will be darkened, the moon will mm-hmm. not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and yeah. the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, that should have been a clue right there. Mm. But that the, <laughs> the, the idea that like, okay, the thermonuclear fusion at the heart of our solar system will cease combining hydrogen molecules together. <laughs> and like, like that's honestly like what, I mean, I wouldn't have said that, mm-hmm. but that, that is what Jesus must mean in my literal mm-hmm. dispensationalist hermeneutic way of reading is that that's what the sun means. And that the, the reflected light on the moon will not be shining. All those billions of stars out there are going to go out and that hasn't happened yet. So it must be, uh, future. future, but then 34, uh, verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so I'm just splinched. Yeah. I'm just, um, <laughs> I'm, you know, beaming in Star Trek halfway into a wall and I just, I can't figure out what to do with this Yeah, until you say, let the Bible interpret the Bible. And you see how many times in Isaiah 13, in Ezekiel, in Joel, in Amos, that this language of the sun, moon, and stars, and the, the clearest one, the cutest, easiest one is Joseph with his uh, dream at the beginning of his uh, life saying, I saw the sun, moon, and stars bowed right. to me, and 11 stars, his brothers, bow down to me. It's the symbol for rulers. Yeah. And that, you know, Isaiah is very plain. I'm describing the fall of Babylon. Mm-hmm. I'm describing the fall of Edom. And that the Bible has meaning for this sun going out, uh, mm-hmm. moon not giving its light kind of stuff. That, that it was, Jesus is talking about primarily, the main referent is AD 70. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that this is the end of this these rulers, all these people who right. opposed him all his ministry long, that this is the people of God that he's having to cast demons out mm. of yeah. in the nation of Israel. Yeah. That it's, it's not some space-time future Carl Sagan uh, mm-hmm. end of you know, the space-time continuum right. that he's talking about. And so to just be able to, to get... Jesus back. That really was then the clue to me is that these red letter passages where yeah. Jesus is talking mm. are, you know, the preterist interpretation is correct. This was fulfilled. It was a prophecy mm-hmm. to them for them to hear and for them how to act. Get out of Jerusalem when you see the armies coming. Yeah. All of these things meant something to them. And Jesus was a prophet. He did know the future. He told it before it happened. Yeah. And and that these words and have 40 been years fulfilled. later, the, the the length of a generation right. within you know, yeah. give or take a few is yeah. exactly when it happened. Right. Were, uh, their lights were put out. Yeah. That's what exactly. that language and that, means. That was when like the the preterist and the post mill all mm-hmm. clicked for me mm-hmm. is to be able to say, yeah, these all had meanings. God was talking to these people. The Bible is for me, but to them, mm-hmm. and that I have to do the work of submitting to God's communication. Right. What was he saying to them? One confusing piece about that for me when I was studying it was we're saying then that that was the Son of Man coming on in judgment mm-hmm. on the Jerusalem, on yeah, the nation right. of Israel for rejecting the Messiah. Right. And that was that was the Son of Man coming in judgment. And so there's a couple of different ways that we would... In, interpret the when when the bible says his coming yeah because that is that is a coming of christ in judgment right. yes right and that's where people go because people want to every time they hear coming christ mm-hmm. coming they want to second coming final yeah. ultimate final, yeah. exactly yeah. right yeah, yeah th- this is a really important point so so he he's um um before the high priest 
um, uh, are you him? And, and he says, this is Mark 14, 62. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's alluding to Daniel, Daniel 7 there. Mm -hmm. So typically, of course, he's talking about the, his final coming always. Well, he, 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 he cannot be. He is talking to that person saying, you guys are going we'll to see, see this happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's, this wasn't, in Daniel 7, it's not talking about his, his um, coming back to earth. It's about his ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days mm. um, to come and to rule. And so he's, right. yeah, like you said, it's him coming in judgment in AD 70. And again, um, I can't remember which, I think it is Josephus, but um, he, he talks about how um, people were were shouting, um, see him coming or, or um, yeah. the, the the sun comes. I right. can't remember the exact the, the wow. Seeing like the chariots yeah. you know, of the angels, the seraphim, yeah. and the cherubim coming down. In AD 70, people had visions in mm -hmm. Josephus of... Which wow. is in the original the, sources, yeah. yeah. End of the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, to wrap up, um, I wanted rapid fire. I, d I just thought of this. Mm -hmm. okay. I want to rapid fire the main objection passages. Mm -hmm. And I've got a few of them down here. Mm -hmm. I, I found in a little document that I made. Um, so first of all, because there's the people who are getting into it, they're interested and they think, but didn't Jesus say the road is narrow yeah. and few people find yep. it? So there's a few passages like that. So I want to throw that one out. Matthew uh, 7, 13 and 14. Jesus said the way is narrow and few people find it. How do we make sense of that in mm -hmm. light of this post-millennial framework? I mean, in his day here, Jesus is coming to the people of God and finds them demon-possessed. Is that the truth is not established by you know, counting noses, checking the wind and things like that. This is not where you can just get majority and then like just follow the herd and that will get you into heaven. This is not going to be some kind of like, we can, we can just see where the majority mm -hmm. goes. That that's not how to establish the truth. I think is his point there. Well, yeah. And he's not talking about the ultimate tally. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's the very next verse Beware of false prophets who yeah. come to you in cheese clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these are people who are under the teaching of false prophets. Mm. Yes. And so if you're following them, if you're in that world, then that way is why that leads to destruction. Very few will find the narrow way. Some, mm -hmm. there were some good Pharisees like Nicodemus yeah. or um, uh, is it Joseph of Arimathea? Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. um, um, but in context, he's not talking. And, and again, this is where we have to read it within context. Yes. This is not at the final day when the Lord is is tallying the votes. Uh, looks like a ton went to hell and only a few took you up on the offer of Jesus. Right. Um, no, he's talking about in their context, be careful of these false prophets. And that same language of like when he's, you know, that the wedding feast, like so few people showed up. So go out into the yeah. highways and byways Fill and up. bring the Gentiles in to shame Israel. Well, let mm -hmm. me... Let, let me, I'll play devil's advocate for a second because I know if I was just getting into this and I heard that interpretation, I'd be like, oh, it seems like a stretch. But let me, let mm -hmm. me also say, let me tell you why it's not a stretch. And it's because if you read the very next chapter, it says many will come from east and, and west. west. I was just, yep. yeah, exactly. Just about to go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> so it's like, too. that's how we know. So that's in light of that passage, right. which is clear. Right. We need to then interpret this passage. Where, what does he mean by few? Mm -hmm. Because he just says in the very next chapter. And and something we need to be um, aware of, even when we're reading this, this psychological phenomenon that happens, 
there were not chapter breaks and verses yeah. in the original scriptures, but but we have chapter breaks, verses, and we have titles of sections, which is helpful. Sure. But it's also unhelpful in that They're it makes not us, inspired. <laughs> it makes us compartmentalize our reading. That's good. Okay? And and what is Jesus's ministry? I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right. And that you will do greater works than mm. me, he says mm. to the apostles, not meaning they're going to get crucified even mm. better. Like, no, that the number of people who come in, that he had 50, 70 disciples, a couple hundred, and that 3,000 are converted on Pentecost mm -hmm. by Peter's first sermon, that the greater, the ministry of the Spirit is numerically greater, but that Jesus' ministry first was to the lost tribe of Israel, mm. right. where he is largely rejected. rejected. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. Crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children. Oof. Yeah, Man. I mean, so that's that's really well said. That's the context that, that he's speaking into. Yep. Um, it's his first ministry, and it didn't go well there. So that's... that's uh, we nailed that one, guys. <laughs> that one's out of there. So I'm gonna, a, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. It really I mean, is. I, yeah. I had that one as well, same. so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, same. And there's a couple of those I can just hear people... There's sure. one that's a little less common, but I get it from time to time, and I appreciate it. It's it's Luke 18, 8, where he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Mm -hmm. um, and I remember listening to a Ken, or I was reading Ken Gentry on this, and everyone assumes because it's the water that we swim in, it's mm -hmm. the air that we breathe. Talking about the end of days. Not only that, but what he made the argument was that you're assuming that the answer is no. Mm. And, <laughs> right. And and there, and he, he gets into the Greek and says that there's no reason, there's an ambiguity to it, but there's no reason to assume that Jesus is saying, no, he will not find. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, that was like a big, like, what? Okay, well, hold on a second. But yeah, there's no reason to assume that he's talking about that, that, they, that he won't find faith on the earth. Um, have, have you guys dove into that passage before on this on this topic i don't know this one as no well. I, I i haven't but again even reading it in, in context um the the next one he tells the parable of the pharisee and the tax collectors and so he he is speaking again to, to this jewish audience and we understand his coming yeah. um as being coming in judgment right and so when he comes to jerusalem to to, to judge her mm. will, will he find faith large in a way mm. he won't and just just scrolling down the page let the children come to me your sermon from, yeah. from Sunday here is that who gets into the kingdom is upside down mm -hmm. from your assumptions. Mm -hmm. That that very much is the point here. Rich yeah. young ruler is That's the next one there of like, hey, I kept all the commandments. I'm hot stuff. Mm. Is that like who we would say, of like, of course they're saved. They're rich. They're Pharisees. Or, yeah, they're yeah. Pharisees or whatever yeah. the assumptions that we make about who's in. His point is to go against their concept mm -hmm. of who is automatically in. Mm -hmm. And and again, another hermeneutical principle, we have to ask ourselves, can a verse be read a certain way? Yes. But does it have to be? Right. Oftentimes, no. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just play origami with the text at all. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is part of doing the hard work of exegesis. What, what, how did this land on the original audience? Yeah. And what, what was the point he was actually making? Yeah. Mm. If you're going to get your point out of it, you need to know what the original point was yep. Yep. as yep. part of it. Last one I want to hit is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through three. I'll read it. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. That doesn't sound very mm -hmm. hopeful. 
So what do we make sense of that? But if this is what the last days are to look like? Mm-hmm. I th- yeah, the for me, I am a partial preterist, but I don't think that that means that you have to throw out everything about the historicist, as we were talking about mm-hmm. these views earlier, is to say Jesus is describing the end of that time leading up to AD 70, yeah. but that what it looks like at the end before God comes in judgment is similar across mm-hmm. the world here is that as we, you know, look and see these, you know, judgments coming on our country here in America for our disregarding of the Lord and casting off his ways and doing these sort of things, there is a, a pattern of what people running amok before God comes in judgment looks like. Mm-hmm. There's a similarity there. And so I, I don't want to say to the dispensationalist person, like, you're totally wrong to find application right. of that verse to today. But we have to understand Timothy was reading this. Mm-hmm. Right. And Paul said, understand that in the last days, so I'm a, not 2,000 years, he's writing to Timothy, that yes. Timothy will be able to understand yes. <laughs> that in the last days leading up to because the judgment. Because Paul's not going to live to 70, right. but Timothy is. Exactly. Right. And that's the thing, and that's, that's the paradigm shift we're kind of advocating for mm. is Understanding that last days does not always refer to the end of the right. co- the cosmos, right? You know, right. and we know this. I think one of the best ways we know this. We talked about the Olivet Discourse that these things will happen. This generation will not pass away before these things mm. come to well, pass. And, and the, that's why it's it's really important to understand there really was a changing of the guard as far as understanding um, the. When we're talking about ages, yeah, um, so the, world, it, it was coming to an end. This old age was coming to an end. There was a forty-year overlap of mm-hmm. gradient of when it, it wasn't decisive, but it was coming to an end. And then this, what we might say, is new heavens and new earth. In a sense, was inaugurated. Then yeah. that will then blossom more and more. Well, we we've really lost the importance of the Olivet Discourse. I think, like yeah. how huge. I Jesus, mean, Jesus the prophet. Jesus the prophet, yeah. and it's like. This is why people are so, like we said earlier, invested in making it not be uh, a pre seventy A.D. kind of stuff. Because no, that can't. That's too specific. Like Jesus's prediction of the destruction of the temple is just totally like one of the most incredible, outrageous prophecies. Because it's down to like we said, forty years is the yeah. generation in right. the mind of mm-hmm. the Hebrew person. And so, how old was Jesus? Bob? 40, yeah. 33, 30, you know, 30, 30 years old. And then here 30, we... Oh yeah, AD 30. AD 30, it's yeah. at the beginning of his ministry. And so, and then here, here, 40 years from now, right? all of this comes to pass, and it does exactly mm-hmm. that, you know? And so mm-hmm. you're talking about the changing of the guard. We, we, we've got to remember that this was one of the most foundational prophetic moments in mm-hmm. Jesus's ministry. And 70 AD is... It's it's almost it's the vindication of Christ as Messiah in many ways. Yeah. It all came to pass just mm-hmm. as he said. Yeah, he was risen from the dead, shook up the whole world with Pentecost. Everything's going on now. It does it all come true like he said. And right. sure enough, yeah. 70 AD. If the people it. of God haven't gotten behind him, this is what most of the New Testament is about. Then can he really be the Son of God, the Prophet of God, the one, the Son of Man? Is that and the answer is yes, and that it is his mercy to put off the judgment that he could have, you know, come down off the cross mm-hmm. in his power on judgment on the people of Israel. But instead he said, you know, father, forgive them, give them another chance. So many of them repented. He waited a generation mm. to bring that judgment. And mm-hmm. it was, it was in mercy mm-hmm. through the people, the, the, the people of God who rejected the son of God, mm-hmm. he was still merciful 
forgive them for they know not what they do. Absolutely. Right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I hope this was helpful and beneficial for you guys out there. Any final thoughts on practical application on a Tuesday morning, guys? What? Is, why does it matter that we believe this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I've, for me, it goes back to the thinking generationally. Um, don't thinking often of my great grandchildren. Mm. Um, the the vast majority of Christians will have great great grandchildren. Yeah. Um, and realizing um, that there's a great hope, a great promise. Um, uh, for them in in the gospel, um, it's not just polishing the brass on the Titanic, but it's yeah. planting seeds that will, um, by God's grace, grow into oaks of righteousness. And so, do the slow hard work of building sturdy institutions. Do the slow hard work of building beautiful buildings. Do the slow hard work of catechizing your children mm. because it it really matters. Don't don't hunker down. Um, but expect to take the, the, the high ground for Christ. So um, and I think that's part of it as well, too, is, is don't retreat from politics or from the life of the world engage. you live in. in. Engage with it and expect um, to see the fruit of righteousness from Christian engagement, to, to, to see that when the Lord taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, mm-hmm. he expected to answer that prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so get, get, the kingdom is not just vague behind the clouds. You pray that it actually uh, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's so good. And then uh, I'm gonna for me the uh, my first viral Twitter post ever was how post millennialism destroyed my church plan. <laughs> and I and I told I when I met Doug Wilson I told him I want you to know you almost you destroyed my church plan <laughs> with your with your post mill nonsense not nonsense I'm a post mill now but um, but the the reason it's practical is whenever I came to believe that we actually win the war, mm-hmm. right? We may, we may lose some battles, but we, that we win the war. All of a sudden, it totally reframed my understanding of God's mission and the, and the Great Commission itself. Like all of a sudden, it wasn't just about winning a few disciples, winning a few souls here and there, but it was about that and more, which is cultural reformation, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the commandments of Jesus. And whenever I realized... I need to be thinking long-term and not short-term. Oh my goodness, if we win the war, that changes the battle tactics. And really, that made me shut down my church plan, among other things. But that was one big push, was that we didn't have a long-term plan. for the, It was just a little firework to win a few souls in a hard place. But wait, what if we went to a place where we could build something mm. that could last for generations, that we could pass on and build and mm-hmm. grow, and a culture that would actually win a culture war? Mm-hmm. You know, I like that. The Doug's quote, you can't win a culture war without a culture. We've got to build something. And that's and that's what it put in me was this long-term view to build something. Yeah. You know? I think I think for me the 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 controlling idea that this is not original to me at all, is that we live between a D-Day and V-Day. Yeah. That that we've taken Normandy Beach, Jesus Christ, the first fruit from uh risen from the dead is that he has won the decisive victory and we get to be part of just marching across all of Hitler's troops and just winning, but that there can be moments like what's happening right now in America is Battle of the Bulge, we're surrounded on nuts, that this there, there can be some ugly battles in there, but we know we are on the winning side mm, and yeah. that Jesus is going forward to win the war, that he's already had the decisive victory and we know where it is going and it's glorious and that even in the pinch, even in your most black pill feeling moment of depression, whatever, to know that 
yeah, maybe America is not going to ultimately, you know, be around for eternity. Mm, but America is not, not the hope. Right? That's, yeah, not, exactly. that's not what your hope is. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is the eternal kingdom. Amen. Amen. And so with that, we're going to give you our charge. We pray that you would go build, defend, and expand the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and do it with a ton of hope because you're yeah, post right. now, right? Amen. 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 <laughs>